welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello, Brendan O'Shea here, welcoming you to another edition of Tall Poppies, a series of podcasts featuring Australian luminaries from around the world. Thank you for all your emails, which have been arriving the last months from all over the place. It's always great to hear from listeners. And don't forget to drop by the Tall Poppies website, where you'll find a host of background information about our guests. You'll find it at tall-poppies.com. That's tall-poppies.com. Now, while Tall Poppies was initially established with the support from the Australian Embassy in Berlin, in order for the podcast to continue, it relies on the generosity of you, the listener. So if you enjoy listening in, please consider sponsoring the project. To find out how to make a contribution, visit the support page on the Tall Poppies website, where I now have a link to Patreon, a service that makes it easy for you to subscribe to the podcast Otherwise, just send us an email to info at tall-poppies.com. That's info at tall-poppies.com. And remember, if you do enjoy the series, please share the podcast around, either by forwarding the link to friends and family or reposting on social media. In today's podcast, we meet the Brisbane-born musician Catherine Milliken. I never really had the feeling there was something I couldn't do. It didn't matter how hard it got, how despondent I was, because something was, you know, maybe this was a particularly high bridge to have to cross. But I think my whole training in Australia had given me just a great confidence and a sort of gung-ho feeling that I could just wade in there and do it. I think that's really the best thing that you can give a young person is, you know, is a feeling of looking into the future with excitement and feeling that you can meet whatever comes. So, yeah, I was lucky. Now, Kathy Milliken's been an artist many young Australian musicians have looked up to when they've travelled abroad to continue their studies in Europe. A renowned oboist, composer and music educator, Kathy has held key positions with two of the world's leading music ensembles, that being Ensemble Moderne and the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. A graduate of the Queensland Conservatorium of Music, Kathy completed a performance degree in both oboe and piano. In Europe, she continued her studies with renowned musicians such as Heinz Holliger and Maurice Bourgault. She also studied the Delcro's method of teaching music. In 1980, Kathy was a founding member of one of the world's leading music ensembles, the Frankfurt-based group Ensemble Moderne. Now, that group has appeared at most renowned festivals and distinguished performance venues around the world and works closely with the composers themselves. They rehearse an average of 70 new works every year, 20 of which are world premieres. Among the composers that Kathy Milliken has worked with during her time with Ensemble Modern are Karlheinz Stockhausen, Steve Reich and Frank Zappa, to name just a few. That was the exciting thing, was just meeting all these different worlds, different offerings of composers about how they thought about the world, how they devised sound, how they listened to the world. (laughs) 
Cathy remained with Ensemble Moderne for 26 years, before taking up a position with another of the world's prestigious music ensembles, the Berlin Philharmonic, when she was appointed the director of the orchestra's much-celebrated education programme, a position she held until 2012. So Ken Robinson, the great educator, says, when we educate our children, we have to realise that we're educating them for a time where we're not there and we have no idea what will face these young people in the future. So we have to educate them in a way that will make them think outside the box, help them think outside the box, and help them think in a way that they lead them to creative solutions. Kathy left the Berlin Phil to dedicate herself to composing. She has composed for theatre, opera, radio, film and created installations. And among her commissions are works for the Berliner Staatsoper, South Bank Centre London and Enarxis Centre in Paris. Her accolades include the Australian Art Music Award, the Mario Merz International Music Prize for Composers and a Prix Italia. Today, Cathy is recognised internationally as a leading creative director. Recent participatory compositional projects have led her to South Africa, Japan and Oman. Back in Australia, she was recently appointed associate composer for the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra for the next three years, a position that will allow her to create a new orchestral work each year for that ensemble. Well, I caught up with Cathy Milliken in Berlin during the European summer, where we talked firstly about an ensemble that seems to have become a leitmotiv of many of the musicians on this series, and that indeed being the Queensland Youth Orchestra. Kathy Milliken, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a big pleasure, Brendan. <laughs> well, one of the great pleasures of, of this particular series is the fact that I get to see these Australians that I've met over the various years. You, of course, were already a little bit of a legend by the time I got to Germany because I came in the 90s and you'd come already in the 80s. You're a founding member of that very prestigious group, Ensemble Modern. And what... It's very, very interesting for me is perhaps to look first of all at you arriving here all those years ago. How prepared you felt? Well, when I arrived in Germany, it was really an open book. But I brought with me an extraordinary wealth of experience in orchestral playing because, of course, I'd been a member of the Queensland Youth Orchestra with the famous John Currow. Now, I think as a young player... That gives the most extraordinary experience to be playing in orchestra too. I mean, that's why we learn our instruments is to play in a group, to play with others. And so I felt terribly well prepared. And when I got here, I realised that other kids had not had the same experience as I had. So that, you know, that really had given me the feeling of sort of, well, I've done most things. I can do this. I can do that. And I never really had the feeling there was something I couldn't do. It didn't matter how hard it got, how despondent I was, because something was, you know, maybe this was a particularly high bridge to have to cross. But I think my whole training in Australia had given me just a great confidence and a sort of gung-ho feeling that I could just wade in there and do it. And uh, so 
I think that's really the best thing that you can give a young person is, you know, is a feeling of looking into the future with excitement and feeling that you can meet whatever comes. So, yeah, I was lucky. Indeed. Let's look at Australia for you and when you were away from Australia. If I was to ask you to finish the sentence, when I think of Australia, I think of, what do you think of? I think of my morning walks out at Brookfield, where my parents live. That, you know, those rays of very early summer sunshine at 5.30 in the morning, just filtering through the trees. The birds all are calling and being in an orchestra. Just extraordinary. I think of people who are innately generous, in, in, a, in a generous in their community, friendly. I talk to people on buses there. I don't necessarily do that in Berlin because, you know, it's, I don't know, I just don't. Um, and I get into long conversations with people I don't know, <laughs> which is delightful. And, but I meet people who are also passionate about things, you know, who can be, I don't know that I meet that many people in Germany who sort of have got such unique passions about things you know really people who've I don't know they've I don't know they've just found a, an extraordinary slant on the world very unique and I think it has to do with you know there not being sort of so many icons that you can follow you know there are no busts of Beethoven looking over your shoulder so I think that really I think the Australian society is really innovative and I, I love that and there are people who are just not afraid to to experiment with crazy things I mean when do you know that you're Australian um, look, I don't, actually. I feel, and maybe that's the Australian thing, that I feel me. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think that's very, I think that's very healthy to be, sort of feel part of lots of various different communities if I'm allowed to. So if I'm invited into a community, I, I do my damnedest to do as the Romans do. And, you know, really be part of that, whether it's in Japan or South Africa or wherever that is. So if I do feel Australian, it's more that I I connect that with my younger days because I was there for 20 years. So, you know, it has to do with my school or with my growing up phase. So sometimes I connect it with not good things <laughs> like, you know, the inhibition that you can grow up with as a young girl and the lengths I went to to sort of throw off the shackles to become a fully formed human being. So, But what I'm delighted to get to know is the Australia of now and to work out, according to that, who I am. What is the current that makes machinery, that makes it crackle? What is the current that presents a long line and a necessary waste? that makes machinery, that makes it crackle? What is the current that presents a long line and a necessary waste? And a necessary waste? What is the wind? What is it? What is the wind? 
What is it? What? Indeed, and of course, you initially were a member of the Junge Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie, or Philharmonie, which was uh, those days, I think, based still in Frankfurt, was it at that time, or was it, where was it in those days? Yes, the um, Junge Deutsche Philharmonie actually didn't really have its own place. It did move to Frankfurt later on, but it was I was very fortunate to move straight into that because um, it was out of this group that the Ensemble Modern grew, and that's where I met my future colleagues that I was then to have 26 years. <laughs> Indeed, 26 years and 26 very special years. Incredible collaborations in the 80s already at the beginning. Perhaps we should explain to Australian listeners right from the very beginning this group was specialised in a particular type of music. You were working, of course, with all the prominent and well-known composers of the time. You were also working in a very different way right from the beginning. You were specialised in a very... A particular type of performance of music, also helping, encouraging and presenting often for the first time new works. The marvellous thing about Ensemble Modern setting itself up in the 80s, it was democratic ensemble. We, the players, set it up. And we had all decided at that stage in the 80s not to go into an orchestra. So as a young person from Brisbane, I really didn't see myself moving into a German orchestra. And as None of my German student colleagues did either. It was a time of really looking for a different way of making music. So the idea to set up the Ensemble Down just happened right at the right time. And it was a group that we formed to self-enable so that it seemed no problem at all to contact a Mr. Leggetti and sort of <laughs> quite cheekily say, would you come and work with us? And surprisingly or unsurprisingly, they did all come and want to work with us because it was a time where a group like Ensemble Modern was really needed. Um, orchestras weren't at that stage doing very much contemporary music at all. And so contemporary composers were looking for other groupings of musicians to actually perform their pieces. So actually with the said Mr. Leggetti, who was a wonderful composer, mm. um, we did seminal works like premiere his violin concerto. Yes, indeed, there followed a period where we worked in the early 90s with Frank Zappa, extraordinary composer, and he too, strangely, was looking for a group exactly like Ensemble Modern. I'll never forget, we had a recording session with him in um, Los Angeles. It was our first meeting with him. And he put a piece of music on our stand called This Is A Test, and it was really quite easy. So we, we read this, and um, he sort of just gave a half smile, as he was wont to do, little sort of sardonic smile, and gave us something else that was really black with notes and black with different sorts of rhythms. And we read that as well. So from that moment on, I think inside the first 10 minutes of meeting him, I think we scored a, quite a few points and uh, that followed a, a really wonderful collaboration with him that resulted in the recording The Yellow Shark. with a lot of young composers too and it was our um, mission also to support young composers but you did mention Stockhaus and so I'll, I'll just deviate there and um, we did uh, in 1992 a very big portrait of his work at the Frankfurt Fest Music Festa but preceding that we'd also all worked with him and I'd studied his uh, Infreundschaft I think I was the first oboist to do that because you had to do it from memory. It's quite mm. involved, actually. It was um, 
um, labyrinth of variations. And the labyrinth included, you know, counting all of the specific rests correctly, the trills exactly, the succession of notes. And the successive variations all sort of deviated by one extra sixteenth rest here. And one trill, it was sort of slightly, instead of being transposed up a semitone, was transposed strangely a, a tone. And there are all sorts of, um, you know, anathemas that sort of weren't quite f- followable, although it was essentially a very logical piece, but a nightmare, but beautiful to perform. So that was amazing working with him. I can remember doing the first four bars for about four hours um, working with him. And the next piece I brought to him was Spiral, which is actually more of a graphic open score with pluses and minuses. And that was one of the most extraordinary pieces I think I've ever played in my life because it really started to challenge me as a performer to be able to compose in the moment, to transform in the moment, and to do all sorts of mental acrobatics while I was performing. It's a piece that ultimately you fail at as well. Mm -hmm. But um, I recorded that with him. And I think a really interesting moment was when I got to one of the variations. And I mean, really, you're sort of thinking fast the whole time to transport and transpose in the way that the pluses and minuses are telling you. And I sort of boxed myself up. I got a little bit too complicated. And I said, oh, I don't think I can go on with this. And I said it sort of out aloud in the recording studio. So we then repeated it. And when I went in, Mr. Stockhausen said, oh, we're going to keep that bit of text in there. I said, what bit of text? And he said, yes, you're a side comment. So it's in there today, this sort of desperate voice of, oh, I don't think I can continue there. <laughs> so that, w- that was really an amazing thing to work with him. And it really was very formative for me as a performer and later as a composer. Ensemble Modern must have given you also a a wonderful sort of playground to experiment with things in a way. Um, Listening to you talk about the types of pieces that you were playing and performing, I wonder how prepared you actually felt you were for this, because this is all new ground, developing new techniques, you're developing new styles, you're developing new ideas, new notation, all these sorts of things that are required in this type of performance, right? I think it was... It was really exhilarating to be able to develop pieces with composers. And we did that a lot, especially younger composers who were really wanting to, you know, break boundaries and break with old traditions. So a lot of what one developed together with younger composers also ended up in the pieces. So in a way, one was developing one's own language because often the composer would take what you'd offered and then sort of take it a step further because in their mind it was quite accessible or quite logical to be able to take something a step further and you know often there'd be things that one hadn't thought about but then they did work you found a solution so ultimately very challenging and wonderful interestingly the concerts that we were doing were sort of happening at very regular intervals so that you know almost every 10 days you had a new set of musical scores on your desk to perform and that meant over a period of time I mean, there were some pieces that were just so hard and, you know, everyone was groaning and practicing and groaning and practicing. And you had to get used to sometimes the notion of failing because something actually maybe simply wasn't possible Mm. then. 
and you had to get used to forgiving yourself if something was actually not quite possible at that stage, no, no saying maybe in the future. But in a way, one also got used to simply, okay, this is hard, this is a Mount Everest, I can climb that mountain. And I think, you know, going back to what I said before about, you know, there's nothing too hard, I really do believe that with a you know, huge amount of application, you can really, you know, get to cracking things. So it meant that one developed one's own way of practicing. So I learned to get very efficient. I practice for a certain amount of time and I practice things for a certain amount of time. There was a lot of repetition because, you know, movement theory is you can carry out a movement when you understand it in all its parts. So I had a really specific way of practicing. And then I can remember my wonderful piano teacher, Max Olding, saying, yes, do it slow, but practice small sections fast. That was a godsend, that bit of advice, because, yes, you do have to learn movements in and sections in, in all sorts of speeds. So, yeah, I developed my own way of doing it. And so eventually, you know, I felt that even though there was new music coming at you every 10 days or two weeks or every week even sometimes, it was all doable and it was ultimately exciting and every new concert brought a new sound world it brought certainly new challenges but let's talk about sound world now because somehow the technical challenges should disappear you know and, and it should be about the music so that was the exciting thing was just meeting all these different different worlds different offerings of composers about how they thought about the world how they devised sound how they listened to the world What I am picking up here in this particular ensemble, the division between composer and performer was sort of minimal, which was in many ways a bit of a new thing for a music ensemble. Well, I think back then it had to do certainly with the generation because the young composers were our generation. Of course, that changed over a while, but it didn't change the sort of colleague collaborative way that the ensemble always had of working. So. Yes, I think it was always a laboratory feel mm. that we had and working with living composers is so exciting, of course, because, you know, if they're wanting a particular sound, but maybe the instrument that you have, you know, I'm thinking about percussion now, for example, which is, you know, an absolute unending world of sound and but yet you mightn't just have the right cowbells so um you know and it's wonderful sort of working out with composers what you have to do maybe it's just buying another maybe it's different sticks maybe it's a thing of muting and you know that's what makes it the laboratory and it also you know for my instrument as a wind instrument if there's a particular sound or a particular combination of sounds that the composer's wanting, it's exciting to try and find a way of doing. You know, and I've had tissues stuffed up my oboe and all sorts of things, <laughs> you know, just to get the required effect. Although the working process was very collaborative, once it came to the concert, it wasn't that the Ensemble Moderne was composing, it was that the Ensemble Moderne was mm. interpreting what they'd worked on together with the composer. So, you know, there is at some stage a divide, but these days now... It, that Even that's becoming less and less. What I am picking up here all the way through is that it was a constant learning process. And, of course, you 
had been busy already with music education and, and the training of young musicians right from the 80s. 26 years with this remarkable ensemble. Wow. And then another major decision to actually move across from Ensemble Modern to the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra and to establish what's now become basically in many, many other places in the world as well, this education department within a major orchestra, one of the world's best. What sorts of things did you take with you into that position? And it must have been probably quite a difficult decision to leave this group of 26 years. Yes, well, I had in the 90s been invited to be part of the National Youth Orchestra of Britain's program, which basically meant that half the orchestra came and worked on creative compositional projects with various mentors. So being asked to become a mentor there was actually a great learning process for me because the other mentors were highly qualified and had been working in creative composition with young instrumentalists and young people for many years. So there were certain skills that over those five years that I brought back with me, which all had to do with leading compositional processes, leading creative processes, and working creatively in a group and managing group psyches and creative processes. So I had that one side. By that time, I'd already been composing myself. And I had also been leading various creative projects myself as part of the response project in Frankfurt, which the Ensemble Modern carried out. So when I came to the education department, my slant was really that I wanted to diversify the program. It had existed for two years before I came. So I wanted to diversify that program, but also focus on the creative composition with people from all walks of life, not necessarily, you know, played an instrument before or thought that they could compose with music. So my endeavour was to reach out to all different sorts of people in all different sorts of places. So I instigated that the orchestra took the education work on tour so that we were also doing projects in France or in Austria, in New York. We did a huge songs project in Harlem. And for the musicians, too, of the orchestra, I think that was a great learning process for them because they hadn't done a lot of very active creative work. So I was able to train them into that. And the other rather subversive desire that I had was to introduce a lot of new music. Now, thankfully, Simon Rattle had put a lot of new music on the program. So it wasn't hard for me to devise a year's program around some of the more contemporary pieces. Having said that, we still did our own creative projects on the ring, four creative projects on the ring, or something like Perry in Paradise of Schumann. So, you know, we, we were doing also the repertoire of the orchestra, which was also, of course, what orchestras want in their outreach work is to make their repertoire accessible. So I wasn't too subversive, but we did do San Francisco Polyphony of Ligeti. We did projects based on Gruppen by Stockhausen, really very, very ambitious things that I was really proud of the way it turned out. So yes, the decision was difficult, but it's somehow the red thread that, or the thread in my life that was coming through of of enjoying teaching, enjoying mentoring. My mother's a music teacher, so somehow, I don't know, it's in the blood or something, but somehow the work that I'd done with the ensemble and the work with um, the English National Youth Orchestra then 
the my compositional skills that I'd been acquiring somehow just it seemed to me the job if I was going to do something after the ensemble and having been in it 26 years it was getting a bit crucial will I stay now mm. or will I do something else so I decided with a very heavy heart to do something else it was very I was grieved mm. <laughs> uh, but in fact it, they were um, seven marvelous years and I had carried one thought with me, which was I thought I would be able to compose more during the Berlinville years. And I, during those years, I was given a major composition for the music of Eva in Munich to write orchestral piece. And I knew, once again, I had to move on if I was going to write that piece. Mm. So in 2012, I left the Berlinville Education Department. Also a huge decision, I'm sure, and a brave decision, and a decision that's paid off because you are indeed now composing, more or less full-time. There is, of course, other things that you're doing, and we'd like to talk about those projects that are taking you all over the place. It's obviously skills that you further developed in your years with the Berlin Philharmonic, but, of course, I'm going back to the fact that you'd already studied certain aspects of uh, music education in the 80s and carried it all the way through. And you've always been very, very interested in dance and all of these things come together, don't they, in these special projects that you've got after the years at the Berlin Philharmonic. Oh, thank you, Brendan, for actually bringing this point up because (laughs) um, I've always loved anything to do with sound. But for me, movement is sound as well or um, theatre is sound. And I love art and I love anything where you can actually bring these various disciplines together. So um, you mentioned music education in the 80s. Yes, I did a Dalcroze degree, a four-year degree, which brought a lot of things together for me. It brought together movement and music. So later on when I was, well, you know, in the Ensemble and also we were doing music theatre, but later on um, during the Berlin Phil projects, I always involved voice and body as much as I could because I think Music education is about the wholeness of the body making music. It's not just our heads or our fingers or our hearts. It's actually the whole body and how the body experiences sound and how it expresses sound. Um, It doesn't mean that I think one has to wildly move while one plays. One can also be quite discreet about it. But it's the inside part of us that is really letting the whole body appreciate music and so you have I think when when one is doing creative projects it's actually really important to create a context in which the music is sort of coming from a space of trust so there are a lot of games that we play in the beginning of creative projects Peter Brook has a lot of exercises that actually are designed to support creativity and to sort of cut off that logical part that is maybe questioning oneself all the time. So there are some great exercises and fun exercises that you can do to sort of weld a group of people who may not know each other together in a fun, trusting situation and then move on to a period where, you know, because you've done quite a lot of physical work, a lot of preparatory exercises, song, voice, there's a sort of a lack of inhibition when you move on so that that really pours into the creative work that you're doing and people get very lateral thinking about the suggestions that they make and so I think it you know it's it is important to have this sort of multifaceted approach to music education and you know I didn't make that up that's that's you know um, a whole sort of 
era of Karl Orff and Dal Crow's methods. It's also people from dance becoming aware and, you know, making us aware of our bodies. Um, and people like R. Murray Schaefer, who've done so much, extra written such extraordinary forays into creative music education that, you know, the path is there. I, if I brought that together for a few people, then I'm very happy. <laughs> Kathy, of course, moving then back to 2012 and this decision to compose full time, how on earth, with all of those things floating around in the in the background there, and all of those deadlines already, you'd already decided that you were going to aim towards one specific piece. Was it was it easy? Was it for you to move out of the BPO uh, schedules and into composing and finding that space, a very different type of space, and probably an area that needs to be rather empty of a lot of other things for you? Well, um, I had had a lot of practice because in the 90s in the Ensemble Modern, I was composing really a lot then. I mean, in 2005, when I knew that I would leave, I had three major compositions that year, which I was fitting in. So I think I've always been quite good at compartmentalising and having a discipline to, you know, if I have to leave something, I leave it, I know exactly what state it's in so that when I come back, you know, it just requires a couple of days and I slip in back to it. Um, I won't say that that doesn't affect the composition, but then maybe that's somehow a factor of my compositional process is that I come and go with it. But obviously I think if you have deadlines, you just get good at managing them. And I am quite a good manager of time. So when I left the BPO, I knew that I could do that. But I knew also that I had to work out a way of also earning money because I think... It's very few composers that, that live entirely, very, very few, from compositions and most of them have some sort of teaching positions or so. So I um, approached quite a few people with ideas and concepts for participatory musical projects or creative musical projects and there was a lot of interest. So throughout the last, well, it's now six years, um, I've had ongoing associations with a couple of groups. One was um, Future Labo from Japan. And with them I went for, yes, it was five years of projects. And that happened immediately after the tsunami. So it was also a lot of very heart-rending but wonderful work with peoples from communities that were devastated by that tsunami. And another association or an organization called Umkalo, uh, directed by Shirley Absop, and that's taken me to South Africa where I've worked with townships. But there have been other projects like one I'm about to do next year with the Elbe Philharmonie, and that's called a City Song Project, where with various groups in a city and they're very diverse, all sort of cultural traditions, all ages, so it's non-generational, non... It's just totally diverse. And we make up a city song, but we also make up a project around that, lots of texts and poetry, and so it'll be fun. And I've done that before in Bruchsal and in Innsbruck. Oh. Yeah. 
and in Talgum in New South Wales. So, <laughs> so that's an example of where a particular concept has been taken to different places in the world. But, you know, obviously, I also like to develop site-specific projects too. So if I'm approached by somewhere to develop something specific for there, then I will, you know, do that. Maybe take us back a step and tell us what these projects actually entail, what it actually means. You you go in to work with a particular specific group of people and with the orchestra or with the musicians in the in the city as well. And maybe just tell us a little bit what, what how this works. Some of the projects are with professional musicians who come to take part as professionals and the beautiful thing about that is that you know they make it very clear and and I do too to the participants that everyone is colleagues and because we're sitting in front of a blank sheet of paper we haven't done anything yet together and there's nothing that's been composed everyone's working from the same situation and from the same uh, point of view starting point as I intimated before, that does involve, you know, a day or two of just getting to know one another and having warm-ups and exercises and things. But I always go with a topic, and maybe it's one that I've been invited to just invent, or maybe it's one which a specific city or community has nominated because it has something to do, you know, with a particular social situation there. For example particular schools that might want to work together and they've never worked together and one's in the east of Berlin, one's in the west. I think of one school now and it was a school that I approached with um, physically and mentally challenged young kids and they had a school next door that they desperately wanted to work with and they saw the kids walk past every day. So I was delighted to oblige there and, and we did a beautiful art and music project. So it really does mean that I'm not coming and forcing some musical concept on a you know suffering group of people that have to <laughs> accept this concept but rather i make an offer and change it as i go along as it becomes apparent that the group would actually prefer to go in a slightly different direction so it's fluid yeah. or i respond to a particular situation and one of a particular situation was indeed the project that I meant that I mentioned before in Japan, where every time I went, and I think there were periods of between six to nine months, the same people that I met, and there were people in local community choirs that had that had existed before the tsunami or had been set up, and local wind bands of that kids belonged to fabulous wind bands um, that was affiliated with the schools. Every time I went, there was some slightly different agenda. You know, either they were discouraged or something new had happened that was good and they'd had a good bit of hope or they were tired suddenly because they'd moved and done a lot of things moving forward and suddenly, you know, everything just became too much. So every time I came, every there was a hugely different cycle that was going on so of course I had to respond very much and you know really shave down the concept or talk it over with them what they were really needing at that time and yeah so I think that's the thing that you have to think on your feet and be flexible and there's no one solution for you know devising a concept mm. for a project remarkably creative project and a remarkably difficult one and probably a difficult one to know where it's going to go when you're in the middle of it and certainly very nice to look at when you look back. Cathy you mentioned of course before one of the big pieces that you were 
concerned about finishing and one of the things that sort of helped you towards making your decision to leave the education department was to finish a, a rather major work for orchestra and mezzo-soprano that you presented for the first time in Munich. Let's talk about that. Yes, well again, Brendan, I don't know if I'm allowed to. I'm going to digress. Okay, you are. <laughs> we allow um, digression. <laughs> so what I, what I just wanted to say, if I can just go back to mm. the point about the fact that I go either with other musicians, take them with me on these projects. Mm. And of course, they're very supportive when these projects are presented. That's one point I wanted to make, that we always present the projects because somehow it makes it easier with the idea that you're going to present your your work with everyone all of the participants it makes it easier to sort of cull ideas and it makes it easier to distillate and come down to the thing that you want to perform for people and mm. so i really invest a lot of thought and energy and into how to help a group achieve the best result for the performance so that there are different stages in these, you know, there's the warm-ups, then there's the totally free and creative, and then there's the moment where I help the composer participants actually become performer participants, and there I'm actually more directive, looking, you know, for a result that they will feel proud of, and I think that's a very good way to go somehow. Mm. So when I, when I started to think about this piece for orchestra, it was always clear to me I would do an educational project alongside that piece. Mm. And I also, having worked with orchestral musicians and knowing their more intimately, because it's different kettle of fish being in an ensemble for contemporary music to playing in, a, in an orchestra. So I felt blessed, you know, having known the musicians of the Berlin Phil for seven years, knowing what they liked and didn't like. And somehow there was also something that was always in the back of my mind, although I also knew that I wanted to write a piece that stood for its own where I really was free to do what I wanted. So the concept that I came up with, because it was going to be a long piece, so I knew it had to be, it couldn't just be a thought. It had to be a sort of a whole web of thought. And one thing I realised too, I was going to be with this piece for a long time, so I needed to stay interested in that web of thought. Mm. And so one thing that w was very clear to me was that I wanted to convey was the sense that I've had the great fortune to have maybe three or four times in my life was a sort of feeling of serendipity or rather more clarity or rather more being at one with the world. And that's generally been when I've been in an area or nature or just somewhere particular and I can't really say that I can do anything to bring on those moments but there are moments where I've thought ah so this is what it's all about and I've come out feeling a bit like an ant I wouldn't say it was religious I'm I will admit that I'm I feel spiritual but I'm not of a particular religion but I chose four places in the world that I felt had strong energy. So writing about these places in the world actually, and I, and for each movement, there are four movements, and for each of them, and I had a sort of different hook, a different way of getting in for the, for Iceland, and the choice of place was in Lingvatlia, which was the first um, parliamentary um, amassing, the first parliament in Europe, in fact, where all of the chieftains in the 900s, 1000 AD, 
came together en masse and talked about their laws, rejuvenated them, reapplied them, redid them. And so although that movement is without text, it's very much reflecting that area, which is a, a great plane where the tectonic plates are moving. So there's the you can see the folds in the mountain where lava's been moving. You can feel that sort of energy. So that was what that piece was about, moving energies. the third piece was based around text that a woman that I'd gotten to know in Japan had written about her experience of the tsunami and she nearly died she was nearly submerged in the waters and she told me she remembered looking up seeing the surface of the water and she was caught and by some extraordinary great fortune she managed to get free and you know her first breath um, of coming up from the water but she also wrote about how um, one had to lose the fear of the water and one had to embrace the sea and the mountains and one had to embrace life and family and friends. So that was the third movement was actually based more on the text of someone from that particular area. second movement is about Epidauros, the Greek amphitheatre where, you know, so many words of drama and healing have been spoken. And the fourth movement uh, was about Radio City Hall in New York. So all of these places had to do with stone and the imagined words or text or feelings that were spoken in Thingvatlir in Iceland. It was the, the law that was spoken in, in Epidauros. It was the Greek theatre in the... Um, third movement, it was the words of this Japanese woman, Akiko Iwasaki, and the fourth movement was about all of the films and vaudeville and musicals that had been shown in Radio City Hall, so that's it in a nutshell. That's it in a nutshell, but what comes through here for me very strongly is something that you told me a long time ago, and that is that the importance of text and the importance of the voice for you. In fact, uh, listening again to your works in the last few days, preparing for our chat today, I noticed that it comes very often that uh, the voice is featured in, in your work, and it's quite often you, and it's been an important part for you, a, a, an important inspirational aspect for you, are these texts. 
That's that's very true. And certainly text um, has been, for me, a major inspiration and a major um, springboard for me. You know, and texts, you know, I mean, they're, they're also other people's ideas, writers' ideas, writers' rhythms, writers' images. So I don't always translate them one-to-one, -one, but I'm also been known to write songs. Mm. <laughs> so, so yes, I love to work with text. I do indeed. Pieces. In darker than small is dirtiest any city's least street of mirror lying are each. Why do people say it's unlucky to break one hole with sky? A star glide. A single frantic sullenness. A single financial grass greediness. Australian politics is always keeps us all pretty busy, keeps politics in any country keeps everybody very busy but there is of course uh, one particular chapter in Australian politics. Julia Gillard was the first woman to become Prime Minister. It's also part of a, a group of works that, where one of your pieces was featured in a project called After Julia. Tell us a little bit about that piece and, and the significance of somebody like Julia Gillard for someone like yourself? Um, well, I was really I'm totally delighted to be invited by Cat Hope. Now, that whole project was Cat's baby. And it was in just in the... She dreamed this up just in the aftermath of Julia leaving the, her position as Prime Minister. And it followed sort of hot in the heels of the very famous, of course, the very famous misogyny speech by Julie, which I think none of us will ever forget. And certainly it sort of started off, I think, for a lot of younger women, a role of R-O-L-L, of becoming aware of their position in society. So an immensely important thing. But, you know, Julia, as, as a very scintillating, clever woman, great speaker, introduced whether you agree with her term as Prime Minister, she was strong and she was truthful, I believe. So Kat decided to commission seven female composers to write a piece reflecting on that, on that whole period. You could, and we were allowed to take whatever we wanted. So one of the composers did a piece for flute and goldfish in a bowl so <laughs> I think the the uh, the connection there's apparent um, but I thought it was brilliant of Kat to do this um, and to curate these pieces Kat wrote one herself too really great piece so I was just delighted to to be involved in that to as a woman to um, you know have a say musically uh, and politically it began inspired by a comment that she made where she said you know, someone had said to her, you know, if you end your term, it'll, you'll probably be carried out on a bard. So it began, mine began as a little bit of a dirge. But in fact, it then picked up in momentum. And then I featured the sort of walls that she came up against in her term. And then the end was a com completely open ending because Julia Gillard is an open book. You know, I mean, she's you know, now involved in education and she's a woman of such, she's a highly articulate woman and very clever and I know that she'll just go on and continue to impact on Australia in many ways.
let's go to Adelaide. Now. You are associate composer in residence with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra for the next three years. And you are, of course, busy each year creating an orchestral work for that ensemble. This must be a bit of a dream come true in many ways for you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really is a, you know, I pinch myself because I'm, I think I'm dreaming, but I'm not. It's true. And um, so I now have the fabulous, amazing possibility to really research an orchestra, the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, get to know the players, get to write specifically for them, and also really investigate what writing for an orchestra means today. An important thing, isn't it? Because this is also part of a doctoral work that you're doing at the moment. Yes, I think that's one aspect of my work that has come through the through the creative compositional work with lots of groups. So that's that's really grassroots, you know, composition with collaborative with people who've you know all walks of life never perhaps uh, played or been had access to music before. Then there's another section where the participatory collaborative work moves over to working with professionals of other disciplines, of other artistic disciplines. And that sort of moves over to collaborative work with other composers. Mm. So basically the doctor work that I'm doing is about specifically participatory collaborative composition, but taking into account all of the all of the very varied focus or the groups that I'm authoring the projects with, I think we'd say. How about this experience of being back in Australia now for longer periods of time and the sorts of things that you're noticing in this respect? You are busy in Brisbane, you're busy in Adelaide, you're getting to spend longer periods of time there than you probably have been able to the last couple of years. What are your observations about Many things that are happening. Well, Kathy, when we think about it, you left the beginning of the 80s. Oh, well, certainly. I mean, I don't recognise Brisbane anymore and I get <laughs> lost driving around. It's extraordinary. You know, certainly there's been a, a real movement forward. Something that is that has stayed, which I'm very glad to say, is the Queensland Youth Orchestra. Just getting back to that was my beginning. <laughs> and that is just flourishing and going from strength to strength mm. which it, with its conductor, John Curro. I'm actually doing the doctoral thesis at my old conservatorium, the Queensland Conservatorium of Music, which is now allied or aligned with the Griffith University. And for me, it's it's amazing to go back in a learning situation. But what I'm finding is that, in fact, this sort of type of feeling of um, renewal and and people searching for researching, people finding new ways of doing things. It's like there's this whole sort of, it's like the whole music scene is, is a laboratory. <laughs> mm. And I can mention examples as I go. My supervisor, the extremely wonderful Vanessa Tomlinson, um, has partnered with her um, duo Clocked, Clocked Out and Eric Griswold to do really amazing projects at the piano mill. There are other amazingly creative people like Kat Hope, who I've also been in contact with, who's who's doing fabulous projects herself. I've also met 
you know, young people just out of the con or at the con who I've just done jam sessions with and who were just so amazingly open-minded. So I am loving the buzz right now. You know, it's just vibrant, a whole vibrant scene, which I'm so delighted to become a little bit more part of. We, uh, of course, have been living, both of us, in, in Germany for a long period of time and there's been an incredible period of time that you've actually lived through because you were here in the 80s, then into the 90s and um, you saw many, many major political changes. What about Australia and the Australia that we read about often in this part of the world, often with negative headlines, sadly? Well, what's your take on it? As somebody who's, who's travelling between the two countries a lot now, how do you feel about that and how much has... Germany influenced perhaps a little bit of your thinking and seeing how these things can function? Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to take two approaches to your question. Mm. My first approach is just viewing the situation for the arts in Australia. And um, certainly in Germany, there would never, ever be the fiasco that happened with the government taking money from the Australia Council to set up its own funding centre with not the same structure in place for peer group review. I thought that was one of the most ill-advised and shocking things. And why, why politicians interfere in such a way where in fact what they should be doing is simply getting more money for the arts. So I found that a particularly shocking thing because it impacted so many organisations. And really, I think, I mean, we all protested at that time and wrote, but I think politicians have no idea of how close to the limit of um, survival arts organisations work Mm. and indeed independent artists. And... Iceland is a fabulous example after their big crash, economy crash. Um, I went to two major conferences there I was invited because the theme of that conference is we will only find our way out of this milieu, out of this economic situation that we have forced ourselves into by um, nurturing the creative industry, which is what they set out to do. And they have now moved on and they supported many creative industries that themselves started to become really viable industries which were then able to give advice to other sectors of the community. So an amazingly futuristic view. So I think a country that suddenly realises that it needs to nurture creativity is a country that also realises it needs to nurture flexibility, new ideas. So Ken Robinson, the great educator, says when we educate our children, we have to realise that we're educating them for a time where we're not there and we have no idea what will face these young people in the future. So we have to educate them in a way that will make them think outside the box, help them think outside the box and help them think in a way that they lead them to creative solutions. So talking about boxes and thinking about Australia, we've had our period in Australia where by hook or by crook we are going to set up a society and we managed. At 
the expense of one particular group of people, the first people, and that is the shameful part of our history. And it's very important that we colonizers admit that. And in every way possible, whether it's considering what does the 26th of January mean and what should it be called, simply this now acknowledgement, the sorry, the apology, but also the acknowledgement of the First Peoples and the suffering and indeed the genocide that happened at the beginning. This has to be acknowledged and it has to be addressed. And the First Peoples now must take a major role in deciding their and our combined futures. Of course, I have at the back of my mind the work that I did in South Africa and getting to know this amazing black South African writer, Fatima Dika, and her view of the truth and reconciliation and just how moving it is to see the amount of readiness that Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu were able to encourage in, in you know, accepting or in forgiving, but also calling upon the, the colonizers in that, you know, the apartheid abusers to also partake in this new turnover. So I don't know what I'm advocating right now, but I'm, it is absolutely that we stop being in our box of white colonizers and move on to a new society, which brings us also to the point of refugees. And I thought it was one of the most amazing things that Angela Merkel did. And certainly it's not without its problems. And certainly there are criticizers um, who will bring up examples of where a very small number of refugees have maybe been miscreants or, yeah, been not good members of the society yet. But hell, they've been through hell and back. And in the, a little bit of the work that I've been very fortunate to do with a group run by Andreas Knapp and Lila Weber, work um, bringing string instruments and string instrument playing and forming little orchestras of refugee kids mm. here in Berlin. I've gotten to know families where, you know, the, the parents are teachers, the parents are doctors, the parents were shopkeepers, and they have fled from such horrific circumstances that the humanity that the German people by far mostly have shown is extraordinary. So there have been re reports of people, you know, from various sections of Berlin, like in sort of further out Charlottenburg, where the, the people of the community feel that there may be too many refugees in their area. But what they've been saying is they have been w really, really working to find a way of including them and sort of finding a way of inclusiveness. And it often doesn't require, you know, too much. But what it does require, as one of them said, it does require us to move over a little bit. And that reminds me of one of that brings me back to the Berlin Phil one of the percussionists, there was, a, there was a, an interview with him. And they said to him, so what did your now being appointed as a new member of the Berlin Phil, what was that like? What did it mean? And he said, well, it meant that my colleagues had to move over and make room for me. And I think if things are going to grow, 
mm. and diversify and have a healthiness in that diversification, then people need to know that there will be a slight adjustment. There'll be a slight moving over. But what I've seen of the you know very successful, very successful inclusions and assimilations of people from various you know cultural traditions is it enriches the society that you're in. So really I wish for Australia that we can that we can stop any sort of harmful box thinking and take a deep, you know, long look at ourselves and just know that we Australians have a lot to offer and we have a lot to learn. And by inviting in the new, and which I've always thought is a fabulous thing in life, is to embrace the new. You move towards a future which is a greatly, much more evolved, humane way of living and society. Cathy Mulligan, this has been fantastic. All the very, very best with all those incredible projects that you've got ahead of you in the next while. Great to meet you back here in Berlin and all the best and, and thank you for your time today. And can I thank you, Brendan, too, for your extraordinary work. You know, I mean, it's so helpful to... It helps us because you you make us reflect on what we're doing and then we can listen to everybody else that you've interviewed. And so I think it's a great share and a great wit and a great writer and thank you for being you. Oh. Brisbane-born musician Kathy Milliken there. If you'd like to find out more about Kathy and her music featured in today's podcast, then please visit the Tall Poppies website. Tall-poppies.com is where you'll find it. That's tall-poppies.com. Or send us an email to info at tall-poppies.com. That's info at tall-poppies.com. Tall Poppies, the podcast was produced in Berlin by me, Brendan O'Shea. Special thanks to Jürgen Kuhn, my sound engineer. It was indeed very nice to have you with me today. I'm Brendan O'Shea and I'll look forward to welcoming you to our next edition of Tall Poppies very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>